Hello, and welcome to Black Thoughts, a project by Podcasting as Praxis. I'm James, and the first episode was quite well received, so we're going to do this again. And this week, I've been trying to decide what to talk about. There's a few different options are floating out there. There's lots to think and talk about. But given that I'm about to go on holiday for two weeks from Podcasting as Praxis, I thought it'd be good to talk about the thing that I'm getting away from. That's right. This week, we're going to talk about bullshit. Specifically, we're going to talk about the bullshit that happens in our work lives. Because from start to finish, as I hope to show you, it really is all bullshit. 90% of what we engage with on a day-to-day basis in the world of work isn't actually work, and isn't even strictly necessary. And we kind of know it, but it's always hard to tell if it's not necessary, why does it exist? So, join me as we talk about the bullshit and work. I know some of you will be thinking that I'm going to be reading extensively from a book called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Although I have it, and although I have read it, I'm not going to be reading from that, because this isn't about jobs that are bullshit. All right. Well, those certainly exist. I mean, there are jobs in our society, which I think everyone agrees are completely unnecessary to the happiness and well-being of humankind. In fact, many of them are actively detrimental, right? No, I'm talking about something quite different today. I'm talking about the bullshit that occurs in jobs. But before we get into that, I think it's important to ask a very simple question. What is a job? I know I'm not coming over like Roz from Well, There's Your Problem here. I mean this question quite sincerely. What actually is a job when you get right down to it? Because a job and work are obviously not the same things. Most people are happy to work. Most people, if you give them a task to be done, that they come to themselves, essentially. They will do that task and they'll often enjoy doing it, even if it's a shitty job. So to speak, even if it's a shitty piece of work, you'd be surprised at people who are like, yeah, I'm happy to do this, you know? Like, um, power washing as a job is long hours, tedium, and, you know, dealing a lot with the cold and wet, basically, if it goes wrong. But power washing, when you're just doing it because it needs done, absent the framework of a job, it's quite fun, actually. There's whole reams of people who find power washing quite soothing. They enjoy watching it strip away layers of muck and grime to reveal something fresh and almost new looking underneath. That's pretty cool. And it's a kind of insight into human nature. When people say, oh, you've got to have capitalism or no one would do all the menial jobs, I disagree. There's lots of jobs which are objectively terrible and that, yes, you'd have to find some way to socially compensate people for but there's still be people willing to do them. Some because they feel called, some because they feel morally obligated, and some because when you get right down to it, they kind of like them. They like the dignity inherent in work, real work. And there's an interesting thought there, because that word, dignity, has something to do with the difference between jobs and work. So what is a job? When you get right down to it, under the capitalist mode of production, a job, work, they've become inextricably interlinked, whereby 
you are offered a job by the capitalist who will give you economic sanction to perform work in a limited and specified way. What's meant by economic sanction? You'll receive economic reward. You will be allowed to proceed and be considered a contributing member of society. When you get down to it, that's, that's kind of what it is, right? You know, we have bound up the right to live, the sanction to be considered a, a, a part of society in the interflow and exchange of money. And the capitalist essentially gives you sanction, puts a, a, fixes a seal to your forehead and says, valued producer in society. And that allows you then to do work, but only the work you're told to do, only the specified limited work you're meant to do, for which you will receive what you need to live. And usually a little more than you need to live, let's be real. If you look at the vast majority of jobs out there, they're intentionally calibrated to keep people hungry, to keep people desperate. And we'll talk more about that later. A job, essentially, is a means of social control. Certainly in aggregate, there are means of social control, because when you get down to it, jobs are the method of economic allocation within society before it reaches the consumer. And to understand, you know, modern capitalism, you have to understand that there is this consumption aspect of society that can be manufactured, there's such a thing as manufactured consumption, and then there's a production aspect of society. And the production aspect is where power really lies. Um, in the, the structure. As such, it's very important to control this and to make sure that only the right things are being produced, that only the right social material circumstances are being produced. And a job is really a, a sanctioned control over this. Um, it's sanctioned by the capitalists from top to bottom, and they appoint people all the way down the stepped bloody pyramid, um, whose job it is to manage the jobs of the people below them to make sure that no unauthorized production is taking place. And thus it comes as no surprise that the vast majority of jobs under capitalism don't really have any democracy. Because since they're engaging with the actual material mode of production, you can't allow democracy to feature in this, right? If you do, then you'll lose control. That's why... That's why worker-owned co-ops and all the rest of it are greeted so harshly. Because it isn't just about the most efficient mode of production and all this kind of nonsense. It's about ensuring that control over production rests in the right hands. And this framing is, is kind of important, right? This is the, the start of the thesis, if you will. Because if you come into this, what I'm about to talk about, with the mindset that a job is a capitalist permitting you to work in an authorised way in exchange for the right to live, and ensuring that you don't work in the wrong ways, on the wrong things, that essentially only those who do what the capitalist wants for society are rewarded. If you come into it from this mindset, and if you come into it with the understanding that the difference between a job and work, part of it is dignity, then you start to see why a lot of the bullshit that people recognise as bullshit in jobs exists. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let's say you believe in the efficiency of capitalist markets, right? This being the case, we are aware there are such things as market distortions. But these distortions tend to be localised, right? 
a good capitalist thinks, well, the market wins out overall if there's distortions to the market VR confined to a specific space or a specific time in a specific way. Why is it then that bullshit is nearly universal in capitalism? Because if it is bullshit and if it serves no purpose, then surely it will have been selected against by the survival of the fittest for capitalism posits, right? Surely the bullshit will have been excised because all it would take then is one capitalist to come along and insist on no bullshit, and they would do stupendously better than all the others who have bullshit riddled throughout their enterprises from top to bottom. What is the function of bullshit such that it is prevalent everywhere, such that it is selected for? What actually is bullshit? Let's start at the beginning. If you're like me, you've had to do job hunting at many points during your life. A deeply unpleasant activity. I'm told that back in the day, in like the 70s and 80s, you used to be able to just basically stroll into a place and get offered a job as long as you showed that you weren't completely brain dead and that you had a pulse. The market conditions have changed. It's now dominated by the capitalists, dominated by the people who own money, um, who have their capital, and it's turned against the producers, turned against the workers. As such, if you're looking to job hunt today, you probably have to start by looking online, and you probably have to go through a recruiting agency. Recruiting agencies, I think we can agree, are bullshit. They're middlemen, whose job it is to essentially match individuals up to work, for which they take a nice cut of the proceeds. They get paid a fee. And, uh, you know, if you, if you can't go through them, then you have to go through an agency, and they're even worse, they're middlemen that never fucking go away. They find people, put them in jobs, and then take a slice of their paycheck, effectively. They're bullshit. Why or why do they exist? Before we even get to the job application process, what's the purpose of these groups? Well, for agencies, it's dead simple. Agencies are essentially there to deny workers rights and to deny them dignity and to basically herd disposable labour. That's really it. And everyone who's ever worked for an agency knows it's 100% true, you know? Agencies are there to essentially give the employers who rely upon them the ability to bring in labour which they're assured has a certain quality, but otherwise they don't need to give a fuck about. And they're paid handsomely for that premium. And they're there both in the larger sense to have disposable labour, but in the specific sense of the office, where often agency labour works alongside non-agency labour, they're there as a kind of understated threat. We could use agency talent and be grateful, be glad that you are not working as part of an agency. It's a shift in perspective. And it's often not even consciously stated, it's just it's just there, right? And what about recruiters? Well, recruiters are a special case. They vary deeply in quality. Some of them are barely a step removed from agencies when you really boil down to it, you know? They're used as de facto disposable labour sources, except they're paid every time. And, you know, they go maybe like three to four months between actually doing their thing. Others, however, they do actually genuinely try to recruit. 
their purpose, such as it is, is to, in my view, engage in the coordination of labour suppression. Um, the, the job of recruiters, essentially, is to act as a single universal funnel as much as possible, as a class, for relatively well-paid jobs, and so as a consequence to be able to engage in negotiations intelligence with the people on wh whose part they are recruiting for. You know, um, it's, about, it's about wage suppression more than anything else. It's also, and we'll be talking more about this later, about externalising risk and responsibility outside of the immediate enterprise. You know, if you're in human resources and you want to hire someone, well, that's a, a risky business. Because what if you hire someone bad, you know? If you can, as part of this, externalise it slightly and put it on an agency, put it on a recruiter, then, well, hey, you know, it just means that they did something bad. And because they are out with the organisation, they're much harder to punish. They're much harder for the capitalist to vent their displeasure on. They can still do so. If they fuck up bad enough, then, you know, they can no longer be contracted. But they can't have that petty oversight kind of, you know, thrown at them. They can't be immediately fired in the same way as some poor HR person can be. HR. Human resources. Where humans are just another resource. So we see already that there's these kind of these structural roles for this particular bit of bullshit. Let's carry forward. Okay. Okay. Let's say you're either lucky and you've managed to dodge the agencies and dodge the recruiters and you've actually managed to approach an employer directly. Or let's say you're having to go through them. One way or another, you're going to have to write a CV or a resume for our American listeners. You basically are requested to take the entirety of you as a person and condense it down into a two-page document. You're meant to show your history. You're meant to show your credentials. You're meant to show the merit you pose for this job and why you would be a good fit. And you're meant to do it without necessarily writing a cover letter. Maybe you'll get a cover letter as well, and we'll talk about them in a minute, but you're meant to take you as a person and condense it down to two flat pages. And you're meant to do it in such a way that it's just laid out by history. It's objective fact, right? That's the thing. A CV, so they tell you, is just meant to be a bland history of what you've done, the grades you've got. You know, it's not really meant to be there. You maybe have a personal interest section where you get to demonstrate some originality, but otherwise it's just the cold, hard facts laid out for the person reviewing them to see. Now, this is bullshit, and it's bullshit on multiple levels. First, it's bullshit the idea that you can condense a person down into their CV. Just absolute nonsense, you know? Um, who a person is is not defined by their history. A, a novel thought, I think, to many people, but it's really not. People can change. People can go through rough times in life. There are many different reasons why a CV may not perfectly reflect someone's capabilities or possibilities. And we all kind of know this. It's possible for someone to have a perfectly shiny CV and be completely fucking useless, just as it's possible for someone to have a pretty uninspired or maybe even outright bad CV. But when you get talking to them, you discover there's solid reasons for this. And actually, they've got their heads screwed on right and they're quite technically competent. 
I could talk about the credential side of this in depth. I mean, God, how long could we take talking about how increasingly they're requiring things like masters to do receptionist work? The credentialist culture part of this is bigger than this episode, right? Like, there's only so many hours in the day, there's only so many minutes for you to listen, and talking about why we have a meritocracy obsessed with credentials is a way bigger topic, and potentially more interesting, actually. So I'll stick it on the list. We'll come back to that one. Let's just assume, take it as read, that the credentials are all there. I, won't, I can't even bring myself to say fair and just, but let's just say they're there. The idea behind a CV is that these credentials say everything there is about you, and it's, it's nonsense. It's real nonsense. Your work history then says the rest about you, and it's nonsense. Again, complete nonsense. It's also bullshit in the sense that, you know, I, I said at the beginning it's meant to just be a statement of the facts, but everyone who's middle class and who is successful in seeking work knows that it's nonsense. A CV is actually a highly ritualized careful test of your ability to express yourself, as is most of the recruiting process. And I know there's some people who don't know this, and I suspect this will be quite enlightening, but here, let me beckon you behind the curtain a little bit. Because I've written, uh, you know, some CVs for myself and for others, which have resulted in people getting immediate callbacks and getting jobs. I've got a very high success rate. And the way it works is essentially recognising that a CV is a format. The assumptions of a CV are a format. What they're actually looking for is they're looking for someone who is able to be conversant in the language of the CV and to therefore be able to tell them what they want to hear, tell them what they're looking for through the constraints of a CV. They're looking for someone who's been taught to play a particular game. A CV is a shibboleth. At the lowest level, it's, uh, you know, just a dehumanizing drudgery kind of activity where, yeah, they do actually look at the credentials. But as it goes higher up, no, the CV, the CV is a challenge. It's a way for you to state who you are and what you're about and how you understand the work and understand what's expected for you in the work in a tight format in a way that, for example, puts more constraints on than a cover letter. If you know the secret of writing good CVs, if you know how to speak this language, you'll almost certainly get a callback, at the very least. And I do. It's one of the things I have been taught. It's one of the things that I know, because as I think everyone knows by now, I come from a bit of a middle-class family in its background. There is a secret to writing CVs. And to explain it, I'm going to talk about a friend. I'm not going to name them here. Um, but I had a friend who I was helping out for a while. They went applying for jobs, good middle-class jobs, to try and get back on their feet and got absolutely nowhere. Eventually they accepted my help and they sent me their CV and I said, okay, here's your problem. Your problem is your CV and it will be your interview technique as well. Let me rewrite your CV. And so I rewrote it and immediately, you know, call back, top of the list candidate brought in. And I also grounded them in the interview, which we'll get to in a minute, and explained the methods by which you answer questions in an interview such that they're looking to get something from you. They're looking for a particular style of communication. And that, that at its root, is what the CV is. What is the point of the bullshit of a CV? Well, partly it's a basic filter. Can you read or write? Okay. Which is horrible, but it's just the reality of things. Part of it is seeing if you're willing to subordinate yourself to a process you don't understand and don't believe in. Because if you don't understand what CVs are actually about, then they're just a pain. It's just something you do, and I guess I'll do this. And partly, 
It's about a distinguisher based on status. Have you been taught the secret codes, the special handshakes, the written equivalent of the special chap at the door for them to take you seriously and consider bringing you in? Now, to your actual middle class person who's fully drunk the Kool-Aid, they will say something on the lines of, no, 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 it's, it's testing people's expression and communication. That's not the same thing at all. But actually is, as someone who can communicate quite well, I'm going to just go out and say that what is considered good communication is largely actually class-coded. And the CV is actually kind of the epitome of this in many ways. A good CV can express that a person is the right kind of cut of cloth to be in a position. And that's part of what they look for. It's part of what they look for. It's part of what the format's designed for. But okay, you write your CV. Maybe you get a cover letter too. A cover letter is an advanced version of the CV side of things. They don't offer cover letters to most positions these days because they're not interested. Cover letters are for the senior positions for the most part, um, or they're for the very middle class positions. And here it can be ambiguous what purpose the cover letter is meant to serve beyond that of a CV. For most middle class positions, it's a reiteration of what the CV is, giving a little more creative room to kind of show a flourish. Um, for the upper positions, it's also an opportunity to demonstrate political connection. Is what a cover letter is kind of for, to be totally honest, right? Because at the upper levels of society, it is all politics. They are all conversant in the language of power and using power and recognise that power rests on connections and rests on status. Therefore, a cover letter is an ability to kind of disclose that. And these are the, these are the functions of these ritualised pieces of bullshit we've got. Because there's the thing. These are ritual, not bullshit. And human ritual actually serves a purpose. So let's carry on. Okay, you get to write your CV. Probably don't get a cover letter. You then almost immediately today have to upload it to an online system, which will mechanically look through your CV and see whether it matches the criteria of the position advertised. Let's talk about the position advertised. Let's talk about its criteria. Isn't it a bit strange and extreme that HR or whoever it is who's writing these job descriptions and these, you know, requests and demands of experience. Isn't it strange that they're always demanding far more experience than a role will require? And yes, part of this is supply and demand, right? You know, part of this is the whole thing that there's uh, potentially very many people who could be taken on for the job. Therefore, you want to trim it down. My favorite example of this is when um, the .NET languages um, computer programming languages made by Microsoft, including things like C Sharp and Java Sharp and all the kind of equivalent. Was it? I think it was J Sharp, actually. Who cares? I left that world behind me a long time ago now. My favourite example is this language had just been released less than six months ago, and already the uh, job descriptions were asking for people with two to three years experience. The only way you could have two to three years experience, by the way, is if you've been on a development team that was making those languages. Absolutely ludicrous, but standard, right? Not that surprising. That's why people found it funny, because it was just a, a common feature at the time. We want people who've got five to ten years experience writing JavaScript to do our web pages, all this kind of shit. Um, and it's the same, you know, in every single sector, it's pretty much the same thing. We want more experience than you actually need to do this job. Partly it's supply and demand, but partly it's, it's another function. It's a deterrent function. They're looking to put off people who don't know that it's a bullshit request. They're looking to select the people who have been 
tapped on the shoulder and told, yeah, just, just ignore that. Just ignore that. It's okay. It's not real. It doesn't matter. You don't have to do that. And they're also looking to do it in such a way that they have, again, this kind of plausible deniability. Um, a lot of this is to do with the politics of human resources, which we will be coming to, I promise. But essentially, if you, if in the description you write, oh, we asked for this many years, and when a candidate comes in who doesn't have those many years and who isn't liked, then, well, they get to say, well, we asked for this many years and you don't have it, right? On the other hand, if you don't have that many years, you come in and you are liked, then, well, clearly you're an exceptional candidate and it's okay. Someone else is making the decision to onboard you at that point, not the HR person. We'll come back to that. These are why these, these ridiculous things get put in the CV. They're there to basically deter people and to act as a kind of discriminant on who is brought in. However, why the mechanical sortition then? Why is it that they, they go through these with a machine kind of reading and learning? Part of this is actual genuine 100% bullshit of a very particular kind. It's the bullshit of an external supplier basically saying, hey, we can really improve your services. And they're selling them bullshit. It's actual bullshit. But it's, it's the clear kind of I am deceiving you to make money kind of bullshit, right? Partly, though, it's, it's also just a, a mechanical response to the fact that they get too many inquiries and they want to have some kind of method of sorting through as imperfect as it is. Because here's the thing, if you have a glut of candidates, the honest truth that you and I know is that for the vast majority of positions, actually, pretty much anyone could do them with the right training and the right support, you know? It's, it's rare to have the wrong person for a job. Rather, you've got a selection of right people and trying to decide who to fit. And who actually does get chosen is largely down to interview, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so you need some kind of method to just kind of, you know, sort through the pile. There's an apocryphal story of someone who, when they received handwritten applications, would toss all the ones in blue ink in the trash, because about half of them would be in black ink and half of them would be in blue ink. So screw it, that reduces the amount you've got to look through by half. Sorry, bad luck, blue ink writers. Try again next time. It's the same kind of idea. That's what these mechanical solutions are really doing. They're providing a pretext. And here's the thing. Most HR people probably know that it's bullshit and doesn't really work and actually it misses good candidates, etc, etc, etc. But they're not really to blame, are they? And if they didn't know about it, it's like, well, I'm terribly sorry. We were told it did X, Y, and Z, boss. But it turns out it, it doesn't actually do those things and we're now very angry. And here's the plan I am instituting to solve this problem. Again, it's an externality. It's, it's something that's beyond the organisation. It's something that politically doesn't necessarily rest directly on the shoulders of HR, and so can be shrugged off. The politics of HR really are central to a lot of this. So, okay, you upload onto the mechanical system. Ah, maybe you get a callback. Excellent, great, time for the interview. No, increasingly you have to do personality tests. What the hell is, why are we testing personalities of people? Long story short, all the reasons I've given so far pretty much apply. They are determining whether you are appropriately educated and understand what is expected of you. They are testing to see whether you are willing to go along with things you don't understand because they're kind of expected of you. They are testing to see essentially who they can easily discard to slim down the process even further. They are also testing personalities. They do actually do that. And it is misguided. Um, and it is backwards. There's this idea that certain personalities fit with certain roles, particularly in the service sector, and it's nonsense, and we all know it's nonsense. 
And actually, there's a lot of research suggesting that all of the different personality types are better in different types of customer situation, right? Um, but again, HR needs excuses. HR needs a reason to be able to say, well, this person was suited and wasn't suited. And it also, it also starts the process of stripping dignity away. Because, I mean, it's kind of been implicit in what we've talked about before, right? It's kind of dehumanizing. But when you're taking a personality inventory, now it's an assault on dignity. Because now you're being judged as a person on who you are personality-wise and told, yes or no, you're in or you're out. Back in the day, I did this. Um, I, I took part in this. I, I filled out one of these things for, of all people, of all organizations, I should say, B&Q, the hardware, you know, um, shop. And yeah, I, I had to do the phone one. And it was one of these ones where it's like, um, on one to five on your keypad, um, you know, answer whether you uh, agree with A or agree with B, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. This, this kind of nonsense, right? And so I went through it and I passed it. But there's two little notes I'll give you about how I passed it. Number one, I said, okay, they are looking for a lackey to clean their floors and to just be a yes man and to, to do all the things without any recourse to dignity that they want to demand. They're basically looking for a slave, right? So I'm going to answer this like a happy slave. And so I did. The second thing, and this was a real trip up, is that one of the answers, like it sounded like a bad line and it wasn't a bad line. It was just that the recorded voice on the other end was badly recorded. And here's why, because one of the questions, the word was intentionally incomprehensible, right? They gave you a word that you're meant to, you know, gauge on one to five as to how well it suits and defines you, how much you agree with it, whether it's good or bad. And uh, they gave you a word that you can't make out. And you're allowed to, they tell you at the start, you're allowed to press for, to hear it again, a maximum of twice. And I never pressed that button. I never pressed zero to hear the, the word again. Until we come to this question, I'm like, what, what was that? Zero. They repeat it again, complete gibberish. And again, I hit the zero. They repeat it again. Here's a trap. Here's a trap they're setting. If I hit zero again, I fail because I've not listened to the fact I've only got two attempts. And then I've got this word and I've got to decide how I feel about it. If I hedge my bets and go high or low, then I'm running to extremes. So of course I hit three. I, I, I sat right in the middle and said, well, it is what it is, whatever it is, it's fine. And that's exactly the answer they're looking for. And I didn't realize, I'm not smart enough to have figured this out on the call at the time. It occurred to me 10 minutes after I got off the phone. They were looking for that. They were looking for someone who has the good judgment, who when they don't know an answer, to just kind of demure, essentially. And that's an actual practical example of a personality test, but it's the sort of thing they look for, right? They're looking for the right sort of person. And the right sort of person is one who doesn't answer the question asked of them, is one who has the intelligence to discern what is really being asked and to answer it appropriately. Or to be so thoughtless that they genuinely are a happy slave. And that's what all these personality tests and the similar do. At this point, you probably got a rejection. In fact, not even a rejection. You probably haven't heard anything because you're one of the, the masses who, you know, aren't lucky enough to be sucked up. But let's say you are uplifted by the mothership and it's time for you to be probed by the aliens. Let's say it's time for interview. You actually get called in. I did a pretty half-hour interview once um, for an internship at, and please, please, like, you can, you can have the torches and pitchforks, but, but hold on a second. I interviewed 
for JP Morgan Chase, right? I did it for an internship that was mandated as part of my degree. And I only did JP Morgan Chase because I had actually fucked up and thought that the deadline for sorting out an internship was two weeks away when actually it was the week I was on. And so I had to talk to my course head and my course head, who inexplicably liked me, said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We, we, I'll sort you with something. We always hold some back just in case. And so I got sent for an interview with JP Morgan Chase, which turned out to be a turn up at 8 a.m. and you're going to be interviewed all day kind of scenario. And it was very deeply strange. And I could talk, I could do an entire thesis just on the format of that interview versus what it was actually for. Another time. Point is, interviews come in many different forms, but they all have the same substance to them, more or less. In an interview, you might be being challenged with technical questions if it's a particularly technical role. That's legit. Like, I, I, I can understand that. I'm not sure it's the best forum for checking someone's technical skills under pressure like that, but I can understand the impulse, and so that's probably not bullshit, right? You, you apply for a job to be an engineer, they ask you some basic engineering questions, and that job seems reasonable enough, right? However, the rest of interviews are really, at their core, about demonstrating a few things on your part while they decide whether they like you or not. And whether they like you is whether you get the interview. Like whether you, you get the follow-up interview or get the position if it's relatively junior. Because there's a the thing, the more senior they are, the more multi-round interviews there are. But let's say you're walking in and you're sitting down, you're having your interview. What are they looking for? They're looking for you again to be able to judge exactly who it is they want to hire. And they know it's bullshit. They know it's bullshit. Everyone in there thinks it's bullshit. But you are there to perform. And you're there to show you can perform. You're there to show that you yourself are the sort of person who understands what is expected of them and knows their place. Which is why they'll ask you the question, this brilliant question, so why do you want to come here and work for Megacorp? And if you give the actual answer, which is, I need to eat, and you're offering money, you fail. Because they are explicitly wanting someone who doesn't acknowledge the base realities. They're explicitly wanting someone who doesn't think in those terms. Who doesn't think about the social material conditions and arrangements. Or they're wanting someone who, even if they do think it, can swallow it down and give a bullshit answer. In giving the bullshit answer, you're demonstrating that you're willing to go with a program. In giving the bullshit answer, you're showing that you understand the other answer would be unacceptable to them. And so it is for most of it. What is your greatest flaw and weakness? Now, if you're really good at this particular question, then you can, you know, you can actually give a flaw and weakness, but you frame it in such a way that it's actually not that big a deal and it's an advantage and you get points for being genuine and, you know, being able to, to be able to finesse the situation, to still speak the truth and yet to be able to do it in a way that makes you sound great. But actually what they're looking for is they're looking for your ability to recognize that they want someone who doesn't have flaws and weaknesses, but who has the ability to pretend humility. Because when you think about it, right, if I walk up to a, some, to a person on the street and just ask them, hey, what's your greatest flaw and weakness as a human being? 
bullshit, insulting question, isn't it? Right? Like, we all have areas where we kind of suck, but, you know, talking about and dwelling about them, that's, that's kind of bullshit. And sure, it might show some self-awareness to be able to talk about them, but let's be, let's be clear here. That's not what's being looked for here. They're not actually looking for self-awareness. They're looking to see that you're willing to essentially say, yes, I suck. I totally suck. And here's how I suck. And here's how it's not going to be a problem for you. I accept, master, that I am a flawed human being. But I am working on my flaws and I promise you my flaws will not trouble you, sir. That's what that question really is. That's what it is about. That's why you're meant to say stuff like, oh, time management can be a real problem for me, which is why I keep a diary and why I work really hard at it, because left to my own devices, it completely gets away from me. Um, and often I do need to keep a, a, a close watch on, you know, my phone in meetings just to keep track of time and make sure we're not overrunning. Um, because again, I'm a bit time blind and that can be a problem, which is why I work so hard to correct it. Um, that's a good answer. It's a good answer because first of all, Everyone's a bit time blind, right? Especially when you get into something, everyone's a bit time blind. It's not really a flaw. But second, it's good because in the process of it, you're saying, yeah, it's a problem, which is why I do this thing, which makes it not a problem. That's what they want to hear. That's the sort of thing they're looking for. There's better answers, right? But, you know, that's what they're looking for. And if you're very, very good, then you can give something that actually is a flaw, but you do it in pretty much the same way. You do it in a way where it's a flaw that's not going to be a problem. And it's about, it's about taking away dignity, really. The whole interview process, it's about showing that you are willing to put aside your dignity in exchange for that paycheck. Bit grim when you think of it that way. The follow-up rounds of interviews, such as they are, follow the same kind of format, except they tend to be for more senior positions and they tend to be focused on figuring out whether they like you. Because here's the other part, right? Okay. Most people can do a job, right? Most people can do basic jobs. In fact, in fact, I'll be honest with you, many so-called high-powered positions could be done by basically anyone, right? If it doesn't actually involve technical skill, and that includes, I'll, I'll, go, I'll give credit and say that does include certain soft person negotiation skills, and does include certain political skills, the technical skills when you get down to it. If it doesn't include in, include that kind of skill set, then pretty much anyone can do it, right? You know? Um, as long as you have basic skills in literacy and the ability to count, then there's so many jobs in society which can just be done by you. And yeah, you might need experience, you might need a bit of time to get behind them, but, you know, anyone can do them. Any job can potentially be done by more or less anyone barring kind of outliers. What then determines whether of a handful of candidates who are all reasonably equally qualified and they're all willing to demean themselves in the same way and put aside their dignity, etc. What determines whether they get taken on? And everyone knows it's, do you like them or not? Because in addition to looking to whether someone's, you know, whether someone's willing to put aside their dignity, they're also looking to find out, well, do I actually want to work alongside this person for like eight, nine, ten hours a day? potentially? Do I want to have this person to deal with? Do I like them? Petty tyrannies, start to finish, really. And the interview panel, you know, 
When they talk about culture fit, that's really what they're talking about. Do I like this person? Do they belong? And that's where racism, sexism and all the rest of it is baked into the process, really. Because at the end of the day, it's a hierarchy of people deciding whether to pick someone up and induct them into their own or not. Sometimes they'll also be looking for potential future leadership material, but that tends to, you know, that tends to be a thing that comes out longer term. It's not really considered at the interview panel unless they're specifically already recruiting an established leader. So. Hopefully at this point, hopefully at this point, someone has been inducted into the world of work. Look how long we've just spent speaking about just the interview and onboarding process. It's total bullshit. But every single part of that bullshit has a function and purpose to play. It serves to reproduce the ongoing state of affairs. And then you get into work, and it's bullshit from start to finish. Let's talk more about that. Congratulations and welcome to your job at Megacorp. Now, time for your own boarding. All right. Anyone who's been onboarded in any kind of job knows that you get the you know guided tour, then you get the explanation of how things work around here and who the key people are that you need to know. And then if it's a job of any appreciable size, you get a whole bunch of bureaucratic stuff. Some of it is not bullshit. Some of it will be health and safety, which is a kind of bullshit of its own, but does have a practical point at the bottom of it. Your OSHA kind of stuff. Fine. Cool. Okay. Great. But then you'll get into the company policy handbook, if it's an organization of any appreciable size. Or you'll get the, you know, small petty business tyrant who's hired you on to work in his kitchen or whatever, will give you his personal list of kind of bullshit things that you have to watch out for. Don't you ever, and all this kind of shit. They are equivalent, right? It's, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but there's a reason I've established that parallel. When a small business tyrant sits you down and says, this is how we work around here, and you better, you know, stick to these rules, um... And the big megacorp gives you the employee handbook. They both serve the same purpose. But to establish that the organization is in charge, that you must abide by what they tell you to, and that they have pretext to fire you on any grounds if you don't. Employee handbooks are there to essentially get around labor laws in a roundabout way. And sure, okay, they will have some stuff in them that is perhaps useful. Some stuff which is involved in onboarding or that does actually explain like a process or system that you have to use. But 90% of these books are horseshit. They're total bullshit. They're nonsense, aren't they? You know, they'll be talking about the core values of our enterprise and all this kind of stuff. And they'll be talking about our customer-centric focus uh, and all this kind of guff. And it's fair to provide a pretext to kick you out, you know? Um, if you don't follow the processes, if you're not on board with the, the bullshit, so to speak, they have grounds to fire you. And a good employee manual is so arcane that actually to function a lot of the time, you'll need to skirt around it. And this is by design, you know. Um, it shouldn't surprise you that in totalitarian states, the totalitarian state has laws against everything, but proves its beneficence by enforcing them selectively. Like, technically it's illegal to drive above X miles per hour or something like this, but in practice we don't enforce it. But they always can. And that's where the totalitarian part comes in. It's like, at any time, you could be fucked on from on high, but we're very nice because we don't. And I don't draw that parallel casually, because the work environment is very much an oppressive regime. 
Okay. The, the work environment within a job is an oppressive regime that is essentially meant to denature you of any power you have. It's meant to suppress any political instincts, meant to suppress any dignity. Workplaces are most decidedly not democracies. Most of them. Most of them. There are some good alternatives, which I might mention a little bit at the end. That's just how it is, right? That's just what you've got to deal with when work. And not really, no, actually, you can democratise your workplaces, you can unionise, you can do all sorts of different things, but they are set up as totalitarian states to repress this kind of action. And, you know, it, it kind of ties into what I said at the beginning, like, jobs in our bullshit capitalist society, and I use bullshit in the, in the you know, I absolutely hate it sense of the word, these jobs are created to control the material means of, of production and ensure that essentially only those sanctioned projects can take place and those sanctioned projects are what the capitalists want. Therefore, democracy can't feature in the major, actually important parts of our society, which is the parts that do all the work, right? Politics doesn't matter that much. It's out of remove. It's the safety valves to make you feel like you've got some say in all of this bullshit. But your workplace is where you actually make a difference to society. The work you do is what makes a difference. And you can't be allowed any democracy there, right? Or any democracy you are allowed has to be incredibly limited and specifically structured in such a way as to prevent you developing class solidarity, you know? It's why we have bullshit rules, which are probably covered as part of onboarding, like you are not allowed to discuss your salary with fellow employees. Let's dig into that one, because that one's pretty fundamental. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, family, others, however you would define yourself, people who are loved and who love in turn. You must always, if you ever have the opportunity, talk about your salary at work. Now, what do I mean by opportunity? Don't do it stupidly. Don't do it in a way that you it will come back to the bosses, okay? But if you have a co-worker you get on with well, and you've got a good rapport, and you trust them, then discuss salary. Absolutely discuss salary. Figure out how much you're both getting paid for similar work. Why don't your bosses want you to do this? Well, you know, the naked reason that everyone kind of knows is it allows them to maintain a competitive advantage in negotiating work. And it's the same reason they don't really disclose a fixed salary. They give a salary range. They want to pay you as little as possible for the work you're going to do for them. They, they just, they want to underpay you. And this allows them, by having everyone siloed, it allows them to pay some people more because they have to, some people less because they can get away with it. And if they don't talk to each other and don't realise that they're all being paid different amounts for the same work, then, you know, the, the whole machine grinds on. But that's a superficial reason. The real reason you're not allowed to talk about your salary at, jo at your job, the reason you're not allowed to talk about your rate of pay, is because it'll start class solidarity, won't it? You and your co-worker talking about your material relationship to this edifice and how it is most assuredly screwing you. That is the beginning of solidarity. That is the beginning of a class consciousness, this idea that, hey, we, all of us on the shop floor, are being screwed by the bosses. Pure solidarity, pure class consciousness, this awareness that you are part of a bigger group than yourself in your own individual silo, and that actually you have needs in common. That could lead to unionization. 
And for anyone who doesn't know it, the real reason that bosses hate unions is because they prevent them siloing employees like this. Which means things like, you know, agreed work rates, where people get paid the same for the same kind of work and the same kind of terms and conditions, etc, etc, etc. And that's just the beginning of it. Because if employees get together, they get to leverage their solidified power, their ability to down tools, or to work to rule and just refuse to do any more than is on the dotted line, and just basically make so many headaches for an employer that an employer has to concede to their terms. Employers hate that. And so you get these bullshit rules like you can't talk about your salary with each other. But it goes further than that. It goes to all sorts of little bullshit rules which don't seem to make sense, but when you actually view them from a perspective of stopping you forming solidarity and class consciousness with your fellow workers, suddenly they make perfect sense. Make absolutely perfect sense. It's probably time to talk about HR, human resources, because I've I mentioned them a few times in the run-up to this. As I intimated, the, the very term human resources suggests that humans are just another resource to be used. And so many companies have clocked on that this is bad optics and they're coming up with alternative expressions. But at the end of the day, it really is humans being used as resources. What's the structural role of HR? Their job, essentially, is to provide a kind of backup to managers. What's the role of managers? In organisations, I subscribe to the following model. At the top, you've got the steely-eyed psychopaths, the actual people who understand power and how it works, the people who understand class relations and are very comfortable benefiting from their end of it. They understand that the workers are to be oppressed, that any value that is extracted is value that is taken directly from the workers. They're, they take the surplus value, so-called, the value that is beyond the costs and then they pocket it and leave none for the workers, or leave as little as possible going back to the workers. They understand this and they're cool with it. That's who's at the top of these organisations, universally. Universally, you know? When they talk about, you know, lowering costs per employee and all this shit, what they're talking about is extracting more profit from them. And they all know it. And this is what's taught in business school. If economics were true and not just propaganda, then everyone who wanted to run a business would go and study economics, right? Except it's not. They go to business school, and business school basically teaches them variations on Marxist theory um, when it comes to labour relations, you know? Because it's true. Because it is, it, you know, it is objectively true there. The labour relations on the shop floor, as Mark observe, Marx observed, Mark observed, <laughs> Karl Mark, um, yeah, the labour relations as they exist on the floor pretty much are the same. You know, the only difference is we've got less class consciousness now because the capitalists have learned how to fight back and prevent that forming. The, that's at the top. The middle management, their job is just essentially to make sure the projects are running okay, to act as the taskmasters, and also, more importantly, to keep the proles in line, to keep the wage slaves in line to keep the people who are brought onto the organisation and are being exploited in line. That's their job. And part of that is to prevent solidarity from forming. HR is essentially specialist services to assist management in this task. And we do more than that. We do more than that. They are involved in like finding people to bring on board, potentially, and in getting rid of people. But that's all part of the same kind of specialist idea, isn't it? It's about curating cultivating a workforce which can be managed effectively. 
And this is, this is all that HR does, but HR is therefore in a very precarious position politically, because if, you know, if you bring on board someone who is causing problems, HR has responsibility for it. And if the workforce isn't able to be whipped into shape so easily, HR are in the firing line for it more than the managers necessarily are. You know, if one manager has a problem, that manager will catch shit. But if multiple managers have a problem, HR catches shit. And thus, a large part of the bullshit in work, which we'll come on to in a minute, is about negotiating responsibility for these things and about maintaining this precarious position where you're not really in power, but you've been granted power over others. And the power you have been granted and the nice benefits you get are contingent on you being able to wield the whip in an effective way. And yeah, as you whip others, so you will be whipped in turn. That is the life of HR. And a lot of HR's decisions fundamentally come down to them trying to insulate themselves and make sure that they don't catch blame. Sorry, our outsourcing on this has just been really terrible. Um, we took all reasonable precautions to make sure that they would be able to effectively do this task and recruit these people. Um, here's what we did. I think you can agree that's quite reasonable. We're now very disappointed to discover they've not lived up to type and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's a large part of how they safeguard their position. But also, as I said, you know, they do, they do advanced services. Like what? They provide a, a pretext for managers to keep costs low. My partner works for a company. And every year she has to do a yearly review. Another kind of bullshit, right? And it is a kind of bullshit, but it's bullshit with a point. What is the purpose of the yearly review, the performance review? Okay. You might think, well, it's to review your performance and see whether you're being better and more effective in your job. Not really. No. I do not know a single person who has ever really benefited from that kind of formalized performance review. It's not how people learn. It's not how people grow. How do people learn and grow? I'll tell you, right? This is, here's a little bit of my management consultancy put into this podcast. People learn and grow when they're given an environment where they can make mistakes and not be destroyed for them. Because learning is a series of making mistakes over and over again, each time making a different mistake and learning, well, I won't do that next time. You need to give people an environment where they can make mistakes. You need to give people an environment that is positive and is focused on solving problems and not constantly looking back and blaming and assigning, you know, you did this or all that. No, it's like we collectively have this problem. How do we collectively solve it? You need to give people encouragement. Tell them when they're doing a good job. Actually say, yeah, no, more of this, please. And you do it by saying, hey, this is excellent work. And ultimately, by telling them how they're getting on and what the good and the bad is, but doing it in a very kind of friendly way. Just be like, so what do you think of this recent piece of work you did? Okay, cool. I agree with you. I think a lot of that's good. There's areas that could have been better, and I want to lay these out to you so you can do an even better job next time. I'm not criticizing the work. It's, it's great, like you said, but there's areas where you can grow, and then you can have those kind of conversations with them. But it doesn't work in any kind of formalized grading structure. In fact, grading people, putting them into a schema, is antithetical to growth. When you try and metrify, when you assign metrics to someone's performance, all you will get is a performance. You won't get actual growth. And so what are performance reviews really about? They are an excuse for denying wage rises. That's it. My partner every year fills these things out. They're all total horseshit. 
and every year, despite doing quite well, she never does really well because the standards of the, the metrics are calibrated that it's impossible to hit the top line. Like, there's been years where my partner has, by the metrics we record on, like, you know, um, doing all the things in her job, she she objectively does brilliantly, but she never gets the outstanding rating required for a meaningful salary increase ever. Ever. The decision to hand those out is political, you know? It's the favoured ones who get that. What they're there is to justify, hey, well, we're only going to give you an increase in line with inflation this year. That's what they're there for. Maybe a little bit more. And the whole process of you submit a review of yourself, and then HR comes back with comments, or your manager comes back with comments usually, and then you have a meeting. That's a kind of negotiation where you're basically, the manager's justifying to you why you shouldn't be paid too much, and they're also gauging, well, how likely are they to walk as a consequence of this? That's what's actually going on. It's a negotiation. It's a negotiation for a salary raise. And what they do is they frame it so that the negotiation is around your performance by metrics that they define, which are impossibly hard to meet. That's what that bullshit is all about. That's what it's all about. There's, there's nothing there about actual real performance, you know, unless you're doing like tremendously terribly. But if you're doing tremendously terribly, they won't wait for an annual performance review to tell you, right? If you're actually fucking up production, they're going to grab you sooner. They will feel your collar. You'll be dragged into HR. No, the performance reviews are a particular item of bullshit that managers use to repress your wages, to engage in a negotiation on terms that benefits them, that they get to frame, where they get to you to accept a bump of like 2.6% or whatever. Maybe a little pittance more than that if it seems like you won't accept that. Never, never meaningful, like no 10% raises here, not unless they're signed off from on high because there's a political reason or someone shows management potential or whatever, right? Not happening. Or occasionally if someone really does something truly stellar, then they kind of do it and they get PR out of it by promoting and parading this person going, look, this is an exemplar of an employee. Don't you want to be just like them? Don't you want to meet this standard of impossibility which only happened because of luck on the part of the employee? That's how they work. That's what they do. And this is an example because HR writes that schema. HR provides this specialist service. They arm the managers to go forward. And HR will make, you know, organizational efforts to distract and divert people. Do you want more time off? We're not going to do more time off, but you're going to get a pizza party. People are wise to that one. So they're always coming up with other ways to obfuscate the same fundamental thing. That's the role of HR. That's the role of that bullshit. And the politics of that, of the whip hand having to fear the whip as well, runs through management. It runs through the entire organisation, in fact. And so that leads us to another kind of bullshit. Bullshit bingo. We've all experienced it from time to time. You'll be in a meeting, even in a public kind of event, watching someone give a presentation, you know, and they will talk bullshit. They'll just throw words out to be heard, right? Bullshit bingo is a game you can play where you make a bingo grid with common phrases like encouraging synergy and leveraging a competitive advantage and all this kind of shit, right? And you've marked them off until you've got bullshit bingo. Um, 
But what is this bullshit actually for? Why is it propagated so much? Well, it forms a bedrock of most organisations, and it does actually have a purpose, but actually it's more fair to say it's got purposes. It depends on context. So I'm going to run through a few different versions of bullshit bingo, the kind of workplace bullshit speak, and what it's actually mechanically doing. Option number one, it is politically untenable for me to admit I don't know something. So bullshit bingo it is, baby. We've all seen this one as someone who clearly doesn't know something, but they can't admit that they don't know something, so they throw out some carefully articulated language as like a chaff cloud to like throw off the heat-seeking missile coming after them, and to avoid admitting that they don't know. Or to avoid admitting a fuck-up is another place where bullshit gets deployed. Often in advance, by the way, we'll talk about that in a minute. This is a kind of reactive kind of bullshit. Um, it's there essentially to safeguard a person so that if they can bamboozle and confuse, then, you know, it's not them who doesn't know what they're talking about. It doesn't. It's not them who doesn't know the answer to something. It's clearly, it's just complicated. And therefore, it's perfectly reasonable and excusable that they not have the answer or they not know something. Or it's the, the fuck up that's happened is very complicated. It's a defensive measure for status guarding. Okay. Status comes in many forms. There's the actual hierarchical status of social material conditions. But then there's the more social part of the social material conditions, where it's like whether someone has respect or not, whether their power and authority is respected. And in the workplace, since we're based on a kind of meritocracy, supposedly, people have to actually seem like they know what they're doing. But, but, in our society, as we've established, most jobs can be done by pretty much anyone, especially when your job is just oppressing the work of others. Like, here's a, here's a really true thing. Um, once you have the basics of scheduling, and once you have, you know, the fundamentals of how to manage and lead a team down, which is a specialist skill set, right? But it's not that specialist. You can train more or less anyone to do it. And once you have all those technical skills together, pretty much all candidates are alike. Everyone is equally capable of doing the oppression side of things, more or less, separated only by conscience and by their ability to essentially read others, right? And so it's a truism that a lot of the people occupying middle manager positions are fucking incompetent. It's such a truism, it, 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 you know, it filters through to pop culture. Like, the famous American version of The Office has their middle manager be an obvious fucking incompetent. And it's, yeah, it's a reflection of the world. It's a reflection of life. It's a reflection of the fact that actually these positions could be done by more or less anyone. They just need a certain amount of skill and talent, and then they're all pretty much interchangeable. And as a consequence, most of them aren't particularly skilled, aren't particularly unique, aren't particularly insightful, and so can't, can't do the uh, I know the answer to everything all the time kind of trick. Bullshit comes in as a support. Bullshit, in this sense, is the rhetorical method by which they guard their status as someone to be respected, as they guard their status as someone who actually understands their work, etc. That's what this bullshit is about. And as such, it grows limbs and it becomes proactive. Because, you know, reactively defending yourself is terrible, but isn't it better if you can set up a situation such that if blame is to be assigned, it can't be assigned to you to begin with? And that's where that kind of bullshit starts to creep in. We talked about it a little bit with the idea that HR offshores, if you will, some of their responsibility so that they can justifiably say it's not our fault, boss. 
buck passing. Bullshit, as it works in offices, tends to largely be concerned with this. And it also can be used to kind of contest, if you will. People will deploy bullshit to justify positions and to advocate for their position being heard over competing positions. And it is all total bullshit, but when the choices are fundamentally equivalent, what else do you have to argue with other than exercises and pure rhetoric? And there's another key word. Bullshit, in this sense, is really a kind of rhetorical skill. It's a rhetorical skill that leans on a few key arguments. Argument one, it's really complicated. Argument two, if you don't understand it, I can't be expected to understand it. Argument three, I sound like what I know what I'm talking about. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, that means you're the stupid one. Argument four, we all understand what this means. Therefore, we're going to go along with it, right? You don't want to admit that you are the only one in the room who doesn't understand what this means, right? And so on and so forth. Rhetoric, the application of status and power to, you know, interpersonal communications. That's what this bullshit kind of is. And like I said, it can be used proactively. You can establish situations where, you know, going in, everyone frames it collectively as well. It's very complicated and difficult, but here's the measured approach we're doing, where they're careful to get sign-off at every point, right? How do you cover your ass? You get other people to tell you that you should be doing this thing, you know? When you go out on a limb on your own, then, well, I mean, if it fucks up, then you will get blamed for it. But if other people have signed off on it, then, well... I mean, you took all reasonable steps, right? Right? And a lot of middle management, you know, in their part of their job that isn't doing the whole suppression of workers and all that kind of stuff, they're basically there to kind of take the blow for senior management. Senior management decide on an idea, but the implementation of that idea gets rolled downhill. Therefore, senior management has someone to blame if something goes wrong. Right? What's the defense against this? Well, it's to make it complicated. It's to show how it's not the responsibility of any one individual. It is to deploy protective bullshit. So that when senior management is displeased, they find that their subordinates are able to essentially argue back that no, the fault doesn't lie with us. A tug of war takes place within the organization. And I can't claim this is uniquely capitalist, right? All all forms of human organization fundamentally will revert to this kind of politics if they have the wrong culture. If they have a culture of blame, then this is what happens. Totalitarian societies must have a culture of blame. Therefore, the jobs of today require this kind of bullshit. Pretty stark when put like that. But that's not the only kind of bullshit. So we've talked about the kind of rhetorical defensive bullshit. Um, what about all these buzzwords that get thrown out at the kind of higher level? That's pure bamboozlement. Pure bamboozlement. Um, it's attempt to, attempts to sound sophisticated, attempts to sound like they understand. And key to this, it's another kind of shibboleth. It's another kind of shibboleth. If you're conversant in the language, you're part of the in-group. And if you're conversant in the language and also understand its function, then, you know, you've got the secret handshake. Because the majority of bullshit that gets used, they know it's bullshit. I mean, no, everyone else knows it's bullshit. 
but they understand its purpose and its function. And so you'll find that senior meetings of leadership behind closed doors, when they know each other, when they size things up, they'll drop that bullshit. They'll use another kind of highly careful language, but they'll drop that particular bullshit. At the highest level, they talk very guardedly and politically a lot of the time, you know? They try and size each other up. They try and understand, well, what is the give and take here, etc. And sure, sometimes they collaborate openly on projects because at the highest level their class interests are perfectly aligned, you know? Um, but they don't have the same need for the bullshit that permeates the rest of the workplace because that bullshit is there because of the structure of the rest of the workplace. It's different when you're on top of the pile. Or close to the top of the pile. It's why the personalities towards the top also tend to be more... to be less guarded. I know you said more unguarded, but yeah. Because they hold the power, don't they? When shit rolls downhill, it rolls downhill from them. So, workplace bullshit has a point, doesn't it? What about getting fired? What about that great task? Alright, you've reached the end of your usefulness. It's time to go to the glue factory. Or, you've fucked up really badly, and they don't want you around anymore. Or, wrong place, wrong time, you're going to get blamed for someone else's fuck up. Or, someone really high up the chain has fucked up so tremendously that the financial enterprise that you're part of is imperiled, and therefore we need to save costs, and so you need to go. Yeah, there's lots of reasons to get fired. There's lots of reasons to go. How does that happen? What's the bullshit in this process? Well, we've all talked about how, you know, it's bullshit the way HR calls people into a room one at a time, etc. And, yeah, it's illustrative to see why they do this particular bullshit by comparing it to when they don't. We've seen examples reach the news where people have been told en masse that they're being laid off. Um, there was one tech bro who laid people off and then immediately said, and here's the DJ, you know, and was doing tequila shots with them afterwards. It's a bad look. But really, the reason they call people into room one at a time, all this kind of thing, is to prevent solidarity from forming. Again, if you talk to a group, you're talking to you versus them. If you keep it to individuals, then, hey, it's a one-on-one, -on -one, right? And I guarantee you there's more HR people in the room, or at least more power concentrated in the HR uh, person in the room, than there is in the sole individual who's sitting across the table from them. So they'll call people in one at a time, and then they'll forbid them from going back to their desk, uh, or have them escorted by security, etc. And partly, partly, that's so that they can't do damage. And everyone's aware of this. Like, you know, you don't let someone go back to their computer after you've just fired them in case they wreck something. But that's not the real function of it. The purpose of having security escort someone out or similar, the purpose of denying someone going back to their desk, etc., is to prevent them talking to their co-workers. Is to prevent any nascent solidarity developing there. Because if they get the time to talk to the co-workers to put their version of events forward, if they get to do that, then they're undermining the narrative that HR will want to spin about the event. They're suggesting that maybe actually there's other interests at play than the ones being stated. Especially because often the narrative that HR spins for people who are firing 
is completely at odds with what everyone in the office knows to be what's actually happening. And people put up with it because, well, I mean, it's you versus the company, right? You don't have any power there. It's not like you've got a union. It's funny how unions seem to get involved in hirings and firings a lot of the time, isn't it? It's almost like they're pushing back against some kind of exploitation. Funny that. I could talk a lot more about the various different kinds of bullshit that occur within these organisations. I mean, just in, just in the firing, the political decision of who gets fired and who doesn't, and how bullshit is used to obfuscate that underlying political reality, it's a novel in and of itself. Any individual part of this is practically a novel in and of itself. But I'm over an hour here talking to you, and I think you're getting the idea. So let's move on to a little closing thoughts, closing remarks. Okay, so I spent a lot of time rambling about the various forms of bullshit and how they manifest in an organisation. It seems like a weird topic, right? Why talk about bullshit in particular? Why not talk about the larger structural things at play? And it's because, it's because not everything is about the big structure. Sometimes it's about how people interact under the pressures of those big structures. Here's why this matters from an anarchist's perspective. What I want to get across to you is that if things seem like bullshit, if things seem like they're pointless or stupid, it's probably because you don't understand what they're actually doing. And that's not through a flaw on your part. It's because actively, they don't want you to understand. You're not meant to grasp what a lot of this bullshit is. You're just meant to be acted upon by it. Bullshit, as it exists in jobs, it's there to keep you in a very particular state of being. It's there to keep you socially, mentally, spiritually, and often socio-materially like, precarious. It's meant to keep you on the back foot, on edge, perpetually about to fall over. Because they like you like that. They like you on the ropes. It makes it easier to extract value. And I've kind of I've sketched a thesis, if you will, here, that workplaces are essentially the, the hard edge of capital, the really hard edge of capital, where the work of society must take place, but it must be carefully controlled to make sure that it's only serving the interests of capitalists and the ruling classes more broadly, because this isn't necessarily just confined to capitalism, but shh, don't tell the Marxists. This activity must be controlled. And in order to control it, you must deny people democracy, because democracy is essentially controlled by the people themselves if it's properly implemented, right? In theory, demos, you know, the, the demos being the actual people, the masses, the mob. And so workplaces have to be totalitarian. And as they're total totalitarian, they have to have their own kind of internal mechanism of oppression, their own arcane rules that allow them to swoop in at any moment their own ritualized behaviors that become ingrained and are used to exploit. And ultimately, they have to have their own kind of comical nature to them, don't they? Like, people often joked that totalitarian societies look absolutely fucking ridiculous from the outside, right? Mussolini, that small guy, 
you know, Hitler, when you actually get a look at the way he kind of went on a lot of the time, just absolutely ludicrously small, pathetic little man. And a lot of the, you know, that, that's the, the sad truth. Totalitarians, Nazis, fascists, any kind of their ilk, they all look like ridiculous figures from the outside because the things they engage in, the, the behaviours they engage in are objectively just ridiculous, you know. Like the Nazis all insisting on everyone doing the Heil Hitler and all the rest of it and all the things that go, you know, just stupid little ritual behaviours. The bullshit in the workplace looks humorous, comical, and pointless from the outside when you're not subject to it, because it's pretty much the same thing. It's, it's a mechanism, it's a form of kind of totalitarian control in a roundabout way. Even if it's not intentionally like part of the design, it's a natural outgrowth of how people behave and handle themselves under totalitarianism. Even, and David won't like this, but if you look at, you know, the Soviet Union, in the worst times of Stalin. There were strange totalitarian behaviours developed in there. Strange behaviours on their own particular kind of Soviet bullshit developed in there. Because they're survival strategies. When people can't live authentic lives where they get to work with dignity, they have to survive in whatever system is allowed them. And how do you live in a mad and inhuman world other than by accepting some of that madness, becoming a little less human, a little bit more of a caricature. What can save you but your acquiescence to the bullshit? We'll talk more in future about alternative visions, but I just wanted to sketch a little picture, messy as it is, as bullshit as it is, about how and why Bullshit exists and will never go away as long as our society is run by capitalism. Alright, that's it for Black Thoughts this week. I hope some of that at least was thought-provoking. I hope that it gives you, you know, food for thought and that you got something from it in the end. We'll be doing more of these in future. I think this is now established. This is going to be a thing. Still no fixed schedule, it will be as and when a good thought arises. If you want to provoke some of those thoughts, if you want to talk to me, then feel free to subscribe to our Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash praxiscast. That'll give you access to our Discord server where you'll get to talk to me about what's on your mind. And maybe that'll provoke thoughts in turn. Similarly, our patrons get access to Black Thoughts a week in advance. They're free to the public and will always be free, I'm kind of very firm on this. Um, but if you want to hear them early, then by all means become a patron. But regardless, I'll talk to you again, hopefully soon. The music was used with permission by RJD2. Take care.